This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. As you know, you've been listening to this show, and we hope you have been. Uh, there's been some trouble here in the state capitol regarding some bad blood between our mayor, Mr. Kevin Johnson, and one of our local investigative journalist outlets, in this case, the Sacramento News and Review. The mayor has not appreciated some of the coverage that his shenanigans have earned in the SNNR. He's been playing some really nasty political hardball with the newspaper. Jeff Von Kainel, the editor of the Sacramento News Review, will be joining us in our second segment today to talk about this saga and the fact that the News and Review will be holding a fundraiser a little bit later this month. We think that's bound to be a worthy cause, and so we'll talk a bit about it in our second segment today. And, of course, also talk about some of these political shenanigans at the heart of all this. But I think what we'll do now is start our program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date today is the 3rd of September. It was on September 3rd in the year 590 that Gregory I became Pope. Among his many accomplishments was the Gregorian chant. And it was on September 3rd in the year 1658 that Oliver Cromwell, having ruled England for almost five years as Lord Protector, died. Actually, I believe Cromwell's efforts gave England a 10- or 11-year run without a king. But after the restoration of the monarchy, Cromwell's body was disinterred from Westminster Abbey and hanged, which frankly gives the British royalists, you know, no credit at all. And we're confident that did not teach Cromwell a lesson. On September 3rd in 1861, in the early days of the American Civil War, Confederate General Leonidas Polk committed a major political blunder by marching his troops into the neutral state of Kentucky. In response, the Unionist legislature invited federal troops into the state, and the Union gained important strategic positions in the war. And speaking of war, on September 3, 1939, following Nazi dictator Adolf Hitler's invasion of Poland, Great Britain and France declared war on Germany. The first casualties? 112 civilians aboard the British ocean liner Athenia sunk by a German sub. And on a happier note, it was two years earlier to that, September 3rd, 1937, in New York City that Orson Welles produced, directed, and stars in Les Miserables. It was the first radio play to be produced by the fledgling Mercury Theater Group. And I must say, it was our great pleasure on this program several years ago to interview someone who was part of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater, although Norman Lloyd did not actually take part in Les Miserables. He turned 100 this year. He's still out there acting. And if you, if you didn't catch our interview with him, we recommend you go to our archives at radioparallax.com. And now, although we normally go to Will Durst at the end of our first segment, I think we'll just air his comments next. Something else that has been our great pleasure over the years is to be able to bring you America's foremost political comic on a regular basis. Take it away, Will. Hey guys, 
Will Durst here with a few choice words about the constant whining about how the American presidential election process is too long. You gotta be kidding. This must be a crude example of joking on your part. Surely you moonlight as a professional leg puller. This 18-month, 24-7 campaigning is wonderful for comedians. Every day, we are guaranteed footage of one of the 17 gazillion Republicans tripping over their own open mouth, sprawling in a manner not unreminiscent of possum roadkill. And on the other side of the information highway, sit in the shade and watch another little piece of Hillary Clinton being stripped right off the bone. This is reality TV at its best. Did people complain that the Kardashian show ran too long? Well, yeah, all right, lately. All right. But why not? Because the participants keep finding creative, compromising positions. Same is true with this Motley crew. So here they are, the top 10 bright sides of having a campaign longer than most people's ability to feign interest. Number 10, Mike Huckabee might actually break the world record for nonstop cluelessness. Number nine, plenty of time for Joe Biden to make up his mind whether he's running or not, or not. Number eight, if Donald Trump hasn't insulted your particular interest group yet, don't worry, he'll get around to it eventually. Number seven, every single day you can watch Bernie Sanders become older and crankier. Number six, plenty of time for Rick Perry to extend his Hey, I'm Really Smart makeover with an Albert Einstein haircut. Number five, can count on at least 16 or 17 more Hillary email dumps before the first primary. Number four, Jeb Bush can perfect his answer to that nagging question, what would you have done in Iraq? Number three, see Marco Rubio earn that touch of gray above the sideburns he so desperately desires. Number two, it gives Scott Walker time to scrub his name off the Ashley Madison client list. And the number one bright side of having a campaign longer than most people's ability to feign interest? More Benghazi hearings. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Or not. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that as we focus on the political campaign coming up for election 2016, we talk about those on the Republican side and those on the Democratic side as if there were no other possible sides. When this country began, our founding fathers took a very cynical view of political parties in general and at first tried to operate without them. Unfortunately, humans, being like we are, it turned out to be just too hard to organize, folks. Well, I shouldn't say that. It wasn't too hard. It just was harder to organize folks. And sort of as a natural consequence of things, political parties arose and, and uh, well, let's just say it hasn't been a good thing. But, dear listener, if you'll permit a small digression, I'd like to turn the clock back to the time before there was a Republican Party. Now, the Democratic Party can lay claim to going back to the time of Thomas Jefferson with some major modifications by Old Hickory Andrew Jackson. Of course, one of the strange things about American politics is if you wait long enough, <laughs> the position taken up by one party will eventually become the position taken up by the other party, or so it often seems. Imagine, if you will, dear listener, the fact that the Republican Party was founded as an anti-slavery party. The party evolved out of a previous political party called the Whigs. Our first Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, was in his youth a Whig. And America actually had four, well, sort of, 
four Whig presidents. And uh, this correspondent got a recent refresher course in um, this era of American history by reading the book Polk, The Man Who Transformed the Presidency and America by Walter R. Borneman. It's a heck of a good read. And uh, doggone it, probably worth talking about for a few minutes. Now, the subject of the book, our 11th president, James K. Polk, was a Democrat. He was, in fact, a protege of Andrew Jackson. And he was elected in 1844, straddling the two elections during which the Whigs triumphed. Now, the Whigs, having observed the success of running a general, a celebrated general, Andrew Jackson, from the, on the Democratic side, decided to copy that formula in the famous 1840 election, which gave us that phrase, Tippecanoe and Tyler II. Tippecanoe was the general, William Henry Harrison, who supposedly had won a battle fighting Indians at uh, Tippecanoe, although he was in fact a wealthy person from the eastern seaboard, his political minions portrayed him to the public as a man who liked to drink hard cider and, and, and would live in a log cabin. Well, this kind of BS played well with the public, and they elected William Henry Harrison over Martin Van Buren. Now, the Whigs thought it might be good to reach out to the other side of the aisle for the vice presidency, so they selected recently converted to Whigism John Tyler. This became important when William Henry Harrison became the first president to die in office. He reportedly gave a long-winded three-hour speech on a very cold day, caught pneumonia, lingered in bed for a month, and then croaked. This made John Tyler technically a Whig president. Now, Tyler got the ball rolling toward some of the things that Polk would take up, like bringing Texas into the Union. And doggone it, we could do an entire program devoted to James K. Polk, and it would be darn interesting. But all I'm going to say after this long-winded intro I think about him is that both his election in 1844 and the subsequent election of the next Whig president, again, a general, Zachary Taylor, was the fact that in both cases, the elections were swung by third parties. In both cases, the third party candidate swung enough votes in the state of New York to swing the national election, based as it is on our electoral college, into first Polk's camp and later Taylor's which I think explains in a nutshell why both parties uh, may disagree on a lot of things, but always manage to agree on the fact that we can't have any third parties at the table spoiling things. And indeed, it reminded this correspondent of election 2000, during which time Ralph Nader's bid to become president actually swung the election to George W. Bush. Now, you've all heard about the great debacle that took place down in Florida where Jeb Bush stole the election for his brother. But that theft of the state and, as a consequence, the national election could not have taken place had not Ralph Nader drained enough votes from Al Gore in the state of New Hampshire to put it in the GOP camp. Which, my dear listener, I think explains how it is we might affect meaningful change in American politics. We have to have a legitimate third party. Were one to develop, everything could change in a national election, which is why the Democrats and Republicans both worked so hard to torpedo 
any third parties that get traction. Back in the 1990s, Ross Perot on the Ross Perot as the standard bearer of the Reform Party did very well. In, in, in two states of the Union, he finished second back in 1992, which is why in the year 2000, no expense was spared by the Republicans to make sure there wasn't anyone to follow in Ross Perot's footsteps. And in fact, you may not remember this, but in the 2000 election, the standard bearer of the Reform Party was Pat Buchanan. That's right. Mr. Republican, the guy who joined on with Nixon back in the late 60s before anybody else did, seeing that he could have a uh, political renaissance and also became part of the uh, Reagan administration. Yes, that Pat Buchanan, he of the butterfly ballot in Florida, took down America's last significant third party. It may be time for another one. It also may be time in the future to talk more about James K. Polk, but... um, you know, I'm all, all I'm going to say is Walter Borneman's book is a great read. You ought to think about getting it and uh, checking it out for yourself. Our quote of the day, just for the hell of it, comes from J. Allen Lerner. In fact, it comes from A Hymn to Him from My Fair Lady, which includes, Why can't a woman be more like a man? Man is so honest, so thoroughly square, eternally noble, historically fair who, when you win, will always give your back a pat. Why can't a woman be like that? Which I think we will answer with our quip of the day from comedian Rita Rudner, who said, When I eventually met Mr. Wright, I had no idea that his first name was Always. And I think for our joke of the day, we'll recycle one from, from the last political cycle. Said David Letterman, Mitt Romney's quite a guy. At one point, he and his wife bought a zoo and fired all the animals. Our anecdotes of the day, and we have two, both come from the Uncle John's Reader, both come from the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. In this case, the Plunges into History Again volume. Our first anecdote concerns the world-famous conductor Peter Bolez. He was detained by police for one of his critical remarks about classical music two decades after the comment. Yes, evidently, back in December of 2001, Swiss police awoke Boulez from the gilded bed of his five-star hotel in Switzerland, interrogated him, and confiscated his passport because his name was on a suspected terrorist list. Yes, evidently, back in the 1960s, Boulez made the comment that all opera houses should be blown up. And yes, this got his name placed on the government watch list, and it was never removed. Boulez was reportedly in town at the invitation of a classical music festival, which we presume did not take place at the Opera House. And since we're talking political campaigns, how about this anecdote from the 1950s? George Smathers was one of JFK's buddies in the United States Senate, and evidently he got his start back in 1950 when he ran against incumbent Claude Pepper for one of Florida's U.S. Senate seats. George Smathers conducted one of the most creative name-calling campaigns in political history. He pulled out all the stops in his campaign speeches, at one point even stooping to call Pepper a known extrovert. And apparently he had no compunction about casting aspersions on Pepper's family. Smathers said his opponent's sister was a thespian. His brother, meanwhile, was a practicing homo sapiens. Furthermore, Charged George Smathers, Claude Pepper attended college and openly matriculated. 
and before Pepper was married, said Smathers, he engaged in celibacy. Reports the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. Needless to say, Smathers won that election. Although he later denied making those speeches, Uncle John's asked, how can you trust a guy who was rumored to believe in homeostasis? And although Claude Pepper left the Senate in 1950, I believe he went on to serve in the U.S. House for, uh, God, something like four decades. Of course, you have to ask yourself, how crazy is that compared to the fact that Ben Carson, who's now somewhere in the top five on the GOP list of potential stooges to run for president, in spite of the fact that he's had a career as a neurosurgeon, believes that the Earth is only 6,000 years old. And for all we know that humans once rode dinosaurs on saddles. I don't know. Speaking of the fossil record, and how's that for a segue, I'm always a bit startled when old news, sometimes really old news, makes the headlines. Earlier this week, the Sacramento Bee published an article with the headline, Fossils Show Big Bug Once Ruled the Seas. Piece by Seth Bornstein opened with this. Earth's first big predatory monster was a weird water bug as big as Tom Cruise. Newly found fossils show. Almost half a billion years ago, way before the dinosaurs roamed Earth, the dominant large predator was a sea scorpion that grew to 5 feet 7 inches with a dozen claw arms sprouting from its head and a spiked tail. Yes, now, these creatures, the sea scorpions, the eurypterids, these are not news. We've known about these things for a long, long time. I guess in China they recently found a new species of this creature, which I guess prompted the headline. And I do have to note that later in the article they did clarify the fact that technically this creature, named Pentagopticus decorahensis, after an ancient Greek warship, is not a bug by science definitions. Point. Speaking of big sea creatures, we noticed on the, uh, the website for... News from me by Mark Evanier, a clip uh, taken at Moss Beach down in Monterey Bay showing some blue whales not far off the coast, which makes his correspondent want to uh, get his kayak and head down to Moss Beach and see if you can actually see a blue whale from a kayak. That'd be cool. But Mr. Millen has reminded me that you do have to keep 500 feet of distance between you and the whale or you risk a fine. And for our good news item for today's program, I think we'll, we'll use the fact that President Obama is up in Alaska trying to point out that, um, well, um, this global warming thing it could be a problem. As noted in our nation's press, in a bid to further his environmental legacy, Obama brought the power of the presidential pulpit up to Anchorage and called on other nations to take swift action as negotiations for a global climate treaty near a close. Said Obama, on this issue, of all issues, there is such a thing as being too late, and that moment is almost upon us. We do have to applaud the White House for taking advantage of the possible photo ops up in Alaska to show people vividly what is going on up there. Obama is hoping to concentrate on the need for drastic action to combat global warming, including a climate treaty that he hopes will help solidify his environmental legacy. And God, we hope so too. And our stat of the day dovetails with something we talked about in the show, I think about 10 years ago, which was the worthlessness of margarine. I recall so well being an undergraduate student at the fine institution of UC Davis and pondering with my roommate why anybody would eat margarine. It, it sort of had this reputation as being healthier than butter, but we couldn't figure out why that was. 
And a quote from an article from the Daily Telegraph, as reprinted in The Week magazine, we note that while doctors have long advised people to limit their consumption of saturated fats found in butter, cream, and meats, new research shows that these fats derived from animal products actually don't increase the risk of stroke, heart disease, or diabetes. The study found that industrial-produced trans fats found in margarine, snack foods, and packaged baked goods, although they're supposedly removing them, do raise the risk of premature death by 34%. This Canadian project was the largest yet of its kind. Researchers looked at 50 studies involving more than a million people and found that trans fats were also associated with a, also associated with a 28% increased risk of death from coronary heart disease and a 21% risk of cardiovascular disease. This study contradicts decades of conventional wisdom about saturated fats dating back to the 1950s. Of course, study author Russell D'Souza said that, that they weren't advocating an increase of the allowance of saturated fats. They note that saturated fats may not cause heart disease, but they can lead to weight gain. And you know, let's take a minute to digress and talk about the history of butter. Because let's face it, it's a subject that just doesn't get enough play. According again to our reliable sources at the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Series, butter has not always been with us. In fact, it was first mentioned by Herodotus, the Greek historian and storyteller of the 5th century BC. He talked about coming across a creamy, rich substance made from mare's milk that, well, sounds a lot like butter. He credited it to the Scythians, who controlled most of the land from the Danube east in his day. Pliny, a 1st century Roman officer and encyclopedist, wrote that butter, in fact, came from the ancient Germans. That may be, but the earliest known practice of making butter is credited to the Syrians and Arabs. They would skin a goat, sew the skin up, leaving only one foreleg open where the cream was poured in, and then hang the whole contraption from tent poles and swing it until its contents changed from cream to butter. <laughs> Notes Uncle John's, let's not go there for lunch. Now it should be noted that all ancient accounts describe it as a sweet, oily cream not the chilled, firm, Landa Lakes-type butter we're used to these days. Once this gooey version was introduced into Roman culture, it was used as a base to make perfumes, bath oils, and body salves. It was also given to elephants and teething children as a medicine. And reportedly, the ancient Burgundians, a Germanic tribe in what I presume is today's Burgundy, used it as a hair conditioner. Now eventually, and by that we mean, uh, in this case, by the end of the 19th century, butter was everywhere. It was exported and imported in firkins, which were tightly sealed white oak barrels that kept it perfectly fresh for months without refrigeration. We presume that's in cooler climates. I don't know. In 1889, vegetable parchment paper began to be used to line one-pound boxes of butter. By 1909, butter was being mass-produced by machines and creameries, creating the product we know and love today. And now you know the rest of the story. All right, we got to take a break in a minute, uh, and before we do so, let's move from the sublime of that wonderful substance we all know and love, butter, to the ridiculous, and of course, that means we again return to politics. I just had to laugh a couple weeks ago when I <laughs> read excerpts from an editorial by Andrew Mwenda writing in The Independent of Uganda. Said Mr. Mwenda, Western conventional wisdom says national leaders should step down after one or two terms. When President Obama visited Kenya last month, this I presume was in May, he lectured Africans on term limits. Nobody should be president for life, Obama scolded us. 
Your country is better off if you have new blood and new ideas, said Mwenda. He's wrong. The African countries that are currently relatively peaceful and democratic, Zambia, Malawi, Tanzania, Ghana, Kenya, and Senegal, all started out with presidents who ruled for at least 18 years. The long-serving presidents bequeathed peaceful transitions leading to stable democracies. But those African countries with leaders who, quote, did the right thing, unquote, and transferred power within a few years, met with disaster. Ugandan President Yusefe Lule, for example, was voted out legally by parliament in 1979, and the result was a series of military coups and civil wars. Well, there you go. You can't have these orderly transitions of power based on democratic votes. He goes on to claim Sierra Leone, Somalia, and Liberia had similar experiences. Traumatized by colonialism, African nations seemed to need the stability of a single ruler before multi-party democracy could take root. This is the kind of journalism we'd have to describe as, well, not so much telling truth to power as telling power what it would like to hear. And too often that happens here in America, but thankfully not with the good people at the Sacramento News and Review. After a break, we'll come back and talk with Jeff Von Kainel about some of their fine efforts over there and what's going on with this lawsuit. Listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around. 